Again, I want to begin this topical sermon, which is not my usual routine. I usually do strict expositions of text, but I'm in a topical series on gender right now called The Gift of Gender. And I want to make sure I'm giving credit to Ryan Anderson and Kevin DeYoung. Their books, along with Carl Truman's, are directly influencing these sermons. I want to be clear with you all on this, okay? I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Last week I began talking about how the term arbitrary, as you know, describes something based on random choice or personal whim. It's often how I make my eating decisions. Uh, It's it's based on that rather than any reason or system. One of you loved me enough this week to send me an email about what to eat and make better choices because of this uh, choice making I have uh, when it comes to food. Um... Many today, though, think that our whole existence, we're not talking about our meal choices, (laughs) our whole existence is about living by personal whim. I remember being told at 20 years old by an older man, you're too much in your feelings, son. I think a lot of people are. Their life and existence has no transcendence higher than self and what self thinks it needs and feels at that moment. You see, when this is embraced in our culture at large, then it's no surprise that gender and sexuality also become what the World Health Organization calls socially constructed. Gender use used uh, is used to as is political language now. Gender is quote assigned to someone at birth. You hear that politicization of the term gender is assigned. It was what was assigned to you at birth. You can't help but to honestly see how our culture has gone from the error of exaggerated and rigid stereotypes of men and women to the opposite error now of denying that there are any important differences between the sexes. We we, we can't do anything, especially in America, without we swing from one extreme to the other. Seems that way our history, how we do do politics, uh, and clearly culturally, we go from exaggerated, rigid stereotypes on men and women to now just denying that there are differences at all. Some feminists today believe that certain choices about marriage, family, and work-life balance should not be tolerated or even be legal. I'm not saying anything. This is right out of their own publications. A columnist for the Daily Telegraph wrote up an op-ed titled, It Should Be Illegal to Be a Stay-at-Home Mom. Let that sit in for a moment. The author, a woman, argued that feminism shouldn't be about giving women choices, but rather about making women equal to men with equal understanding means acting the same regardless of what any woman might want. The author advocated that this should be enforced by law. Rather than wail about the supposed liberation in a woman's right to choose to shun paid employment, she wrote, we should make it a legal requirement that all parents of children of school age or older are gainfully employed, end quote. She doesn't try to hide the fact that she believes free choices in this matter leaves women free, free to, in her opinion, to perpetuate outdated patriarchal stereotypes So women should not be permitted that choice. He said too many people would make that choice and we need to take that choice away from them. 
You know, feminism originally sought to liberate women from a restrictive understanding of gender and freedom to be themselves. But it's turned into a movement seeking to make women the same, the exact same as men, without any nod to nature, biology, and especially to God. Where does this, the theory of gender as a social construct arise from? Well, that's a deeper question. It, 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 it arises from a deep discomfort within one's own body and the belief that it opposes their existence as a person. If you pay careful attention, you can see this is just a repackaging of the old Gnostic heresy, where the real person is the self, mind, will, which must transcend and liberate itself from the biological reality, the body. We are so confused. Some of the leading feminist thinkers today are calling for the end of sex distinction. Sexual differences between human beings would no longer matter, they say, if we implemented a radically new form of procreation rightly described as artificial reproduction. Doesn't that sound great? And somehow make children have less native mothers or any nurturing by adults, end quote. These people get platforms. And then at last, pay attention, they say, the tyranny of biological family would be broken. What? These are the ones, by the way, influencing our most popular writings today, movies, media, and universities. The feminists claim today we need to erase all differences between men and women, while the transgender movement insists that the inner sense of a distinctly male or female gender identity cannot be altered by therapy, but must be altered through surgery and hormone therapy. These two movements are ultimately at odds with each other. They just maybe don't know it yet. It's not sustainable. And beneath both groups is a delinking of gender from our biological nature. They do have that in common. The term gender used to mean a personal attribute. It was synonymous with a person's biological sex until recently. Sex is the bodily, or biological reality and gender the social expression of that reality. I'll say that again. Sex is the bodily, biological reality and gender was the social expression to that reality. So gender properly understood as a social manifestation of human nature, springing forth from biological realities shaped by rational and moral choice. So let me note this. Gender is socially shaped, but it's not a mere social construct. It originates in how we are made, and it directs our bodily nature to higher human goods if we see it rightly. Sound understanding of gender clarifies the important differences between the sexes toward our well-being. The rejection of this conceals the truth, denies the facts, and distorts the realities of our nature and hinders human flourishing.
So church, whatever rules there are for men and women found in Scripture for the church are never mere arbitrary rules. They reflect the sort of differentiated and complementary image bearers God designed us to be from the beginning. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I've decided to spend some more time here in Genesis because once we understand the first chapters of Genesis and how God has embedded sexual distinction and sexual union in marriage in the natural order of the created world, everything else we see in the Bible about being man or being a woman will make more sense. So we need to get it right at the beginning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me give a little bit of background here. In Genesis, we see how things started, how God started things. We have the beginning of the story. The first two chapters of Genesis, God gives us a stunning picture of, of, of paradise, a portrait of the good life, the way things were, the things, the way they're supposed to be. It was all very good, as you know from the text. The natural world was good with its striking beauty and peaceful cooperation. Work was good. No coronaviruses, no thorns, no thistles, no anxiety. Just an honest day's work to the glory of God. Sounds wonderful. And the importance of the first three chapters of Genesis for understanding what it means to be male and female cannot be exaggerated. Before I go on, I want to stop here and be really clear. Genesis does not give men and women their marching orders directly today, but it does lay down the patterns in which the New Testament will give those clear commands. Genesis lays down a wealth of divine patterns and presuppositions. So yes, my single friends in the room, these callings find a distinct and strong expression in marriage the lessons from Genesis 1 and through 3 are not just for married couples, though. The opening chapters of the Bible establish the shape of sexual differentiation and complementarity that will be lived out and applied and safeguarded in the rest of Scripture. But even before the fall into sin and the curse, we see that this paradise, there was one thing in which, if left undone, would not have been good, leaving man alone. And that's what Genesis 2 tells us about. It zooms in on what happened. We, we studied last week in chapter 1, on the sixth day. And we do, not, we, do know, excuse me, we do not know that Adam was lonely or that he felt isolated. We don't know that from the text. There's no record of Adam complaining to God that he was isolated, that his felt needs were not met. We have no record of that in the text. But God himself declared that Adam's situation was not good. Every other aspect of creation had its counterpart. The day had its sun, the night, its moon, the waters, its fish, the sky, its birds, and the grounds, its animals. But the man did not have his helpmate. God formed woman from man in Genesis and reunited her to him. This was very good. So the garden was a type of temple in which God's presence dwelt. It was good, and the Bible gives us only two chapters on the creation of the world before the fall. And if we're honest, most of us wish it had more information at times. A few more details, location, appearances, 
How old did, uh, did Adam and the trees and the animals appear to be? I, I can't answer those for you. Of all the things we might want to know more clearly, it's worth noting what God does tell us about in some detail. He tells us quite a bit about the man and the woman. How they are the same, how they are different, and how they were made for each other. So if we're to think rightly and feel rightly and embrace rightly what it means to be male and female, we need to appreciate that God doesn't give arbitrary rules for men and women to follow. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. It's on page 2 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. It'll help you to follow along. Genesis 2, 15 through 3, verse 24. Hear now God's word. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work, to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. For the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at the place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. for She was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. And they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them Both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Amen. As one author observed, Genesis gives the creational capacities for men and women, not ironclad constraints. The man's primary vocation is naming, taming, dividing, and ruling. The woman's primary vocation here involves feeling, glorifying, generating, establishing communion, and bringing forth new life. Here's the central point for you. It's there in your bulletin as you follow along. We're picking up on part two or point two from where we left off last week. It's the same central point. Do not miss out on the goodness of God. Let us see God's glorious intention for creating men and women. Let us see God's glorious intention for creating men and women. We focused last week by seeing in Genesis 1 that men and women, as distinct from all else in creation, are image bearers. I wanted to spend time, just an entire sermon on that. What an honor to picture our lives that God has dominion over us and where we live. In Genesis, man has both singularity and plurality. Humanity can be named singularly as Adam, man, not woman, but humanity at the same time, male and female. There is a him and a them. They were given joint rule over creation. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. He blessed them and told them to have dominion over every living thing. And so that's what we looked at last week. Point one, you'll see it there in front of you. Males and females were created for worship. And let's go to point two now. Males and females were made distinct for God's glory. They were made distinct for God's glory. I want to say this again, that manhood and womanhood cannot be reduced merely to authority and submission, or to leadership and nurture. But these things are meaningful expressions of what it means to be a man 
and to be a woman. Rooted not just in the names we give to people, but in nature itself. The expression of nature will not look identical in the church and outside the church, married and single, young and old, but importantly, it should look like something and should be visible. Sexual difference is the way of God's wisdom and grace. Sexual difference is the way of God's wisdom and grace. It was there in the garden. It's there throughout the Bible. So let's look at this foundation more carefully. In Genesis 2, we see that God created each in its own, in his own, in its own way. He doesn't mention the difference here of, say, height or hair color or temperaments or gifting. The identity marker emphasized at the beginning is maleness and femaleness. That's what we have in the text. First subpoint. They were created in distinction but put together as one. They were created in distinction but put together as one. I want you to see here in the text, did you notice that Adam was created outside of the garden and placed in it? He was charged with cultivating and protecting it. A protection under which the woman was meant to flourish. Eve was created within the garden, suggesting a special relationship to the inner world of the garden. The two came from one flesh and became one flesh. Eve was bone of Adam's bone and flesh of Adam's flesh. Men and women are made of the same stuff and meant for each other, not so that one dissolves into the other, but the two become one. Marriage must be and can only be between a man and a woman, biological, because here marriage is not just the union of two persons, but the reunion of a complementary pair. You know, Adam may have lost a rib, but he gained a far richer reward, a faithful associate of life. He saw him, he's now saw himself, who had been imperfect for the task, rendered complete in his wife. Second subpoint: they were given different tasks. They were given different tasks. Notice that when the man is tasked with tending to the health and vitality of the ground from which he, he was formed, okay, don't miss that. Let me say this again. The man is tasked with tending to the health and vitality of the ground from where he was formed, while the woman is tasked with helping the man from whom she was formed. The man is established in the external world of, you could call it industry here, outside the garden, and the woman in the nurture of the inner world of the family that will come from her as helpmate inside the garden. The names man and woman suggest interdependence. Verse 23 of chapter 2, he exclaims, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so God gives a mandate here to them both to fill the earth, subdue it. It applies to both sexes, but differently, doesn't it? The man created with greater biological strength is fitted especially for working, guarding, and keeping the garden, while the woman literally possessing within her the capacity to cultivate new life is fitted especially for filling the earth and tending to the communal aspects of the garden. Another man could have provided relational respite and energy for Adam, 
Again, we see the order complementarity of male and female, equal worth, different design. Another man could have helped Adam till the soil. But think about it with me, friends. God could have, as DeYoung put it, gifted Adam with a, a plow or a team of oxen or a fraternity of many friends here, all of which would have been useful, even delightful. But none of them would have been a helper fit for the crucial task of producing and rearing children. If mankind is to have dominion on the earth, there must be a man to work the garden and a woman to be his helper. And I'm going to unpack helper here in just a moment. Next subpoint. The weight of their responsibilities is different. The weight of their responsibilities here in Genesis is different. The man was given the priest-like task of maintaining the holiness of the garden. I want you to notice there in verse 17, it's to the man alone, God gave the command to refrain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was responsible for establishing God's command on the earth and guarding God's moral boundaries. And as you know, his obedience to this task would mean blessing while his disobedience would mean death. And looking back, we can see how the man was created before the woman. And, and here, by the way, the fact that he was produced first does not equal best. He wasn't created first because he is somehow best. Because after all, God made the animals before he made man, didn't he? Why is Adam's position highlighted here in Genesis? Well, Adam in the text is given the position as priest and protector, and Eve's position is coming under the man's protection and made from his side for his support. So Adam, as you can see, the text was given the responsibility of naming every living creature. It is telling that Adam alone was given this exercise of dominion and that he was able to fulfill this responsibility prior to the creation of Eve. So in Genesis 2 and 3, we see that Adam twice named the woman, indicating again his leadership. And in receiving their names from Adam, the rest of the living creatures, including the woman, benefit from his creative cultivation and authority. And most heavy for Adam in the text is the fact that he is reckoned as the head and representative of the couple. Even though Eve, tempted by the servant, serpent, excuse me, commits the initial crime, Adam is addressed first. The Lord called to the man and asked, where are you? He was the leader. He was the representative. Romans 5, 12 makes this indisputably clear. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned in Adam. That's what he's talking about. In other words, Adam, not Eve, is the federal head. You know, we throw out big the theological terms like federal head and sometimes assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. I'm going to lean into the good old Mr. Graham for help on this. He said like this, we forget that Adam was the head of the human race, even in, as in this country, our president is the head of our government. When the president acts, it is really the American people acting through him. When the president makes a decision, that decision stands as the decision of the entire people. Adam stands as the federal head of the human race. And when he failed, when he succumbed to the temptation and fell, 
generations yet unborn fell with him. And that's, you may sound, that sounds really heavy and dreary right now, but there's also a, a really important good news aspect to that truth, and I'll come to that later. But let's shift to the observing the patterns here about the woman in the text. The woman was given as a helper to the man, created from man, equal in worth, created for man, chapter 2, verse 20, but different and different in function. Don't let anyone twist the scriptures here. Being a helper in this text carries no connotations of diminished worth or status. For God is sometimes called the helper, same term in the Hebrew, of Israel. Helper cannot be divorced, looking at context from the broader concerns of the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. We know specifically she was brought along, created to help with this aspect. It was not good for man to be alone because he himself could not be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So helper is a functional and imaging term, not a demeaning one. So just as God sometimes comes along to help his people, so the role of the woman in relationship to her husband is that of helper. Remember, prior to this text is image-bearing. God reveals himself both as king in Christ and servant in Christ. Men and women display Christ in image-bearing. Let me say that gender and sex distinction here is, is not about first place and second place but about natural order and design. And it makes sense in verse 24 that the man leaves his family and holds fast to his wife. The inner world of the garden radiating out from this family is shaped by the help and nurture of the woman. The emotional intimacy and communion will be fostered and formed in a unique way by the woman here in Genesis. And so in a relational sense, her family order takes precedence over the man's. Again, I quote good Mr. DeYoung. He said, don't we see, talking about the leaving and cleaving of a man who leaves his father and mother, don't we see this reality even today? When a daughter gets married, you gain a son more than you lose a daughter. When a son gets married, you lose a son more than you gain a daughter. It's not true across the board, of course. And even yet, when both bride and groom come from healthy, loving families, the daughter almost always maintains her familiar relationships better than the son, end quote. By the way, Genesis doesn't call men to renounce their families of origin. It reveals something key about the relational bonds are typically formed and maintained, pay attention, through the woman. Isn't that interesting? You would think that the woman would be called to leave her father and mother and cling to the man in such a unique way. And, but he places that on the man in a special way where community and communal aspects in Genesis here are fostered by the one within the garden, the woman. Next sub-point there, and there's a typo there. It's just, it just, just simply say they experience the curse differently. They experience the curse differently. The, wan, the man and the woman experience the curse in different ways, each in their own fundamental area of responsibility. I don't want you to miss that. In Genesis, they both experience the curse, the result of the fall, in their fundamental area of responsibility. In the fall, and subsequently as a result of the fall, 
the divine design of complementarity of men and women is perverted. Why are things jacked up today? Genesis 3. We live in a Genesis 3 world. You understand that? So Eve, who was deceived into sin, and so did so acting independently of the man, while Adam abandoned his responsibility as a leader. He stood idly by while Eve sinned. That's what's so striking in the text. He's right there. He followed her into it and then blamed God for giving him Eve in the first place. I think Genesis has some of the most striking sentences in all the Bible. The woman you gave me. Just one example. His foolish words will come out of his son. Some foolishness will come out of Cain soon as he talks to God and says, Am I my brother's keeper? Wow. Adam's sin was not only in disobeying God's command, but also in throwing off his responsibility as the head. He played the coward and following his wife's influence instead of God's word. It really sobers us up as men and women, doesn't it? Especially in marriage. Men, are we leading according to God's word? And, and ladies, are you influencing your husband unto God's word or to, unto something else? And both are punished for their disobedience. The man, his unique domain, working the ground, is cursed, verse 17 of chapter 3. And from now on, he will have thorns and thistles to deal with, and he will live by the sweat of his brow. And for woman, her unique domain, childbearing, will bear the effects of the curse. From now on, the miracle and gift of physical birth will be attended with pain and suffering. Technically, only, only the snake and the ground are cursed, not the man and the woman, but all of creation bears the effects of the fall. Men and women are subjected to frustration in their unique spheres of responsibility. Why can marriage be hard sometimes? It's right here. Don't miss this. The relational wholeness between the man and the woman had been ruptured by the curse. And he said to the woman in verse 16, chapter 3, Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This is not romantic desire. <laughs> that's not the desire he has in view here. A lot of guys are like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. No, that's not what he's talking about there. As if God cursed the woman by making her need a man. No, that's not what the text teaches. It's a desire for mastery. Same Hebrew word used in chapter 4 towards Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. It's desire, same term, is for you, but you must rule over it. You mean to tell me, Garrett, Pastor Garrett, that built within... Men and women are these dispositions towards sin? Absolutely. And you're self-deceived if you don't see that temptation in you every day. So just as sin desired to have mastery over Cain, so the woman tainted by sin now desires to have mastery over her husband. You know, today we can hide these things. We can act like we put on the pious look of we're totally aligned and I'm functioning in my role and my God-ordained role in marriage like I'm supposed to, but really functionally not really doing as God's word tells us to, but striving in selfishness to rule. I mean, can't you see the irony of the text? 
God says to Adam, because you listen to your wife, the voice of your wife, he says to the man, you will get what you deserve and she will try to master you. Let's see how that goes. And the sinful husband, for his part, seeks to rule over his wife. So there are men who need to be rebuked for harshness towards their wife. And we've, men, if we're honest, we've all sinned like this. Adam's rule in verse 16 represents harsh, exploitative subjugation. Wherever husbands are domineering or abusive toward their wives, this is not a reflection of God's design, but a sinister perversion of it. And so female subordination, by the way, itself is not God's judgment on the woman. Biblical manhood and womanhood in Genesis is about nothing less than the joyful appropriation of all that God meant for us to be in the garden, divinely fitted for working and helping, for protecting and flourishing, for leaving and cleaving, for filling the earth and subduing it. But we know now what's gone wrong. That good design, that beautiful harmony, that that's what God saw at the end of the sixth day. And behold, it was very good. But now the marriage relationship, which was supposed to be marked by mutually beneficial headship and helping, becomes a fight over sinful rebellion and ruling. God designed sexual difference for one another. Sin takes sexual difference and makes it opposed to one another. Maybe you're here today and you're married and you need to realize we are not in step with the Lord together today. We are poorly imaging God in this relationship. And you need to repent. Friends, can't we see these desires in our relationships? Can't you see even in singles as they respond and live amongst one another, approach it from a self-centered place? Our world is so broken. Singles, do you view the opposite sex as a means for your own end? Married couples, do we see our spouses as a means just for our own ends? Oh, we're so consumer-minded. It's so naturally instinctive to us. Is there any hope for people like us? That brings me to my last sub-point. Their needs before God are the same. Their needs before God are the same. You can see in the text they need covering. Why? They're guilty and, sh and, and, and shame now. They've been made aware of evil. Now, they have a knowledge of evil that they did not have previously. And they have a knowledge of the holy in a way that they did not know previously. Yes, they're in need of help. And praise God for Genesis 3.15. He promised a great one to come. One who would suffer himself but crush the serpent in victory. You see, a greater and a uh, more splendid and more glorious federal representative is needed. One who would not fall. One who would not be found wanting in the garden. You see, Adam had the perfect garden and fell. Jesus did not fail to keep watch as he prayed in, in, in drops of sweat, drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He always stayed obedient, watchful, and faithful. Perfectly righteous. That's why the Bible refers to him as that second Adam. You know, from Genesis on, we read the Bible looking for a royal suffering servant. 
We're looking for the serpent crusher. And that's why it's so wonderful to open up Mark's gospel, for example, and hear about the good news of Jesus the Christ. You see, friends, we need one who will conquer sin and death. We need one to save us and rule over us and put our lives back in order with God's holy purposes for us as men and women, for us as image bearers. We need Jesus. If you're here this morning and you know today you're under conviction of sin, you know that you've disobeyed the Lord, you've you've loved and trusted and obeyed other things above him, that you have never, you know deep down, you've never loved him. In fact, you've always wanted to change him and get him to suit your life more particularly. And you've kept a record of all your good, somehow forgetting a lot of your bads and saying, God, I've done this and you're obligated to do unto me. Friends, you know you're under conviction for viewing God in such a wicked way and sinning against his divine majesty. There is hope for people like you and me who do that. It's to look to the one who lived perfectly in our place. That's why Jesus came in human flesh. He didn't come as some poor martyr that you and I would just simply feel sorry for and feel bad for. He came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to do all the things you and I should have done in righteousness. And he never disobeyed God. And he went to the cross. He went to Calvary's cross as a substitute. That means he went there to take on the just punishment due upon us as sinners. And on that cross, God, in his judicial declaration and his action, took all of our shame and our guilt and he credited it. He imputed that upon, he placed that upon Christ. And Christ was judged in our place at Calvary. In the, in the place of any and all who would repent. That means to take God's side against our sin and trust not in our own righteousness, but trust in the merits and the person and work of Christ alone. And to prove that God accepted payment for my sin and your sin, he raised Christ from the dead. Christ is alive. Christ is alive. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he calls any and all who have ears to hear to turn and come to life. He is the way, the truth, and life. Turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ today. Friends, if you know, today you know you're not a Christian. You know if you die today, you would be standing in your own merits and standing for judgment. Today's the day. Turn from that. Put your trust in Christ. Cry out to God, oh God, I am a sinner. I have no righteousness of my own. But I know that Jesus is your son, the eternal son, truly God and truly man, who came to live and die in my place and was raised on the third day so that I could be saved. Lord, I'm clinging to Christ. If you put your trust in Christ, God will cleanse you. He will forgive you today. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of his Son, the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, the true image bearer, so that we might image God perfectly, more perfectly, should I say, more perfectly as men and women that he made us to be. You say, Pastor Garrett, I've made a wreck of my life. I've hurt my marital relationships. I've mishandled my single life. I've made a mess of things. I'm so discouraged. What do I do? Come to Christ. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you. Turn to Christ. Rest in his mercy and forgiveness. He will cleanse you. Will you lay hold of him today? Christ shows us that men and women find their deepest longings and joy in imaging him. Men are to represent the sacrificial 
kingly authority of Jesus and women are to represent the sacrificial submission of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Is that what you're saying, Pastor Gary? Yes. Yes. You were made to give glory to Jesus. Jesus is both king and servant. Men and women today, be saved, be redeemed, be remade to image our Savior to our world. Let's pray. Father, we mess things up so badly. We truly are the offspring of Adam and Eve. Lord, we're worldly in so many ways we don't recognize. We wonder why we lack joy and peace. It's because we have lived separate from you. And we have looked at you as if you owe us something other than judgment. And so, Father, we say forgive us for Jesus' sake. Cleanse us of our unrighteousness according to your promises in Christ. And Lord, cause us to walk in the manhood and womanhood you created us to, to give glory to the glorious one, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, your Son. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.